Uh, I love Charlie Brown, but he's the classic pessimist. Where have I gone wrong? This is going to take more than one night. Uh, I think I'm afraid to be happy because whenever I get too happy, something bad always happens. Uh, But there's always Snoopy. Charlie says, someday we'll all die. And Snoopy says, true, but on all the other days we will not. Uh, Are you Charlie Brown or are you Snoopy? Uh, Is the glass half full or half empty? Depending on your outlook, you can come to the start of Genesis chapter 4 and feel that things are terrible. Or you can feel like things are looking up. On the one hand, Adam and Eve have sinned and they've been banished from the garden and there's lots of negative consequences for life in the wide world. But on the other hand, there's a sense of hope. God has blessed them with life, they've got a family, they've got a job to do and at the end of chapter 3 he's given them a promise there in verse 15 that one of Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent one of her children will destroy the poisonous influence that ruined everything. So are things going from bad to worse or are things looking up? Chapter 4 verse 1 we find out that Eve's pregnant so the optimist can't help wondering is this the one? Is this the one to crush the serpent's head to fix things up? Are things looking up? And so Cain is born and before long his brother Abel but our hopes are dashed almost as soon as they're raised and the pessimists seem to be right. The past problems bubble to the surface again. Not only are things not looking up, but they're going from bad to worse. And there's not even anyone else to blame this time. Uh, it's not Satan, it's not the serpent who's the cause of the problem, it's humans themselves, in particular their evil desires. In chapter 4, sin comes just as naturally as in chapter 3. The attitudes and the consequences are getting worse. Like cancer that's got into the lymph system and is just taking hold everywhere. It's the next generation on from Adam and Eve. We've got no idea really how many years have passed. We don't even know how many other children have been born. Uh, Cain and Abel are are trying to build a life outside the garden. They're they're struggling against the the ground that's been cursed. Uh, They're both farmers. Abel looks after the animals. Cain looks after the crops. They both recognise God's care. They want to bring him thanks. Verse 3, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Two different offerings. Both brought what they had, but for some reason we're not told. Look at what happens next. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, his face was downcast. One offering accepted, one not. Why? We sort of tossed it around at Bible study on Friday night and People come up with all sorts of reasons. It may have been because Abel offered the best of his flock, but Cain offered the first thing he could grab. We're not told that. 
Hebrews 11 verse 4 says that it was by faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain and it was by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. That's about all we know really. For whatever reason, God chose one and God rejected the other. Uh, More specifically, God chooses the younger and rejects the older, uh, a pattern that we see repeated throughout the Bible. I think the best answer is that we just don't know. God is completely free to choose whoever he wants. Election always works like that. Uh, The reality is both Cain and Abel are offering their sacrifices as sinful people. Neither deserved God's acceptance. Yet in his mercy God chooses to accept one. That's the real puzzle, isn't it? Why would God choose to accept Abel's sacrifice at all? Why has God chosen you but not someone else you know? Well, it's grace, isn't it? Why is it that you can offer your body as a living sacrifice to God even though you're sinful, even though you keep messing up but Romans 12 promises that God will accept it as holy and pleasing to him. That's amazing. Why does God do that? Well, it's grace. In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Amazing grace. I can't understand it. Cain can't understand it either. Abel is the younger brother, but God chose him. Cain is furious uh, and so God warns him that he's playing a dangerous game there in verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? If you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You've got a choice. You can choose good. You can choose evil. Can't blame Satan. You can't blame the world, you can't blame circumstances. The decision is before you. You can influence what life brings you. Sorry, you can't influence what life brings you, but you can choose how you respond. And God puts it like this. He says, sin is crouching like a lion at your door. He's just waiting for you to open it a crack so that it can force its way in. It's up to you to master it, to keep the door locked. It's like that with us, isn't it? You can't give in a little bit to sin. You can't savour it. You can't contemplate it. You can't feed a temptation. Feeding a temptation is like throwing a lump of meat to a a caged lion. You can't dabble with it. Sin desires to have you, to to control you and dominate you. That's the nature of sin. But God says, keep the door well shut. Master sin, don't let it master you. uh, Cain is not interested in God's warnings though. He, He lures Abel into a field. Uh, It's premeditated and out of jealousy and rage he kills him. Things have gone from bad to worse. Charlie Brown was right. 
It was bad in the garden, Eve sinned, but it's worse here. There's no snake that leads, uh, that leads Cain astray. He's got an independent streak. He says, I can mess things up perfectly well on my own, thank you very much. I don't need anybody else's help. Going from bad to worse, after the act, Adam and Eve hide from God, but Cain doesn't hide from God. He stays out in the open. He's brazen. Adam and Eve own up straight away. But what does Cain do? Cain lies. Cain even answers God back. I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? From bad to worse. Even the punishment seems worse. In chapter 3, it's only the snake and the ground that are cursed. But now Cain himself is cursed. From bad to worse. Speaking of the ground, uh, verse 11, God declares that the ground won't yield any crops. It's opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood and now the ground soaked with Abel's blood goes on strike. Abel's blood speaks against Cain's effort to grow crops from the ground. And when, Cain decla- when God declares his curse on Cain, rather than accept it, as Adam and Eve did, he complains. <laughs> Verse 13, It's more than I can bear, destined to be a restless wanderer. One generation on from the very first sin and things are so much worse. They couldn't possibly get worse, could they? Oh yes, they could. Verses 17 to 24 follow Cain's line. Enoch and so on, down to Lamech. In lots of ways, Lamech's family has lots of advantage. There's farmers, there's musicians, there's metal workers. They build and they grow human culture. They're doing what God commanded them to do. They're subduing and creating. But civilization doesn't make them more civilised doesn't make them more moral. Do you see what Lamech does? Verse 23, a boy wounds him and so Lamech kills him. Punishment far worse than the crime. His sin may be the same as Cain's but his attitude is worse, isn't it? He, He boasts about his sin. He rejoices in it. He writes a song about it. His ancestor Cain was a bad man but he's not half as bad as Lamech. It's a pitiful picture of humanity made in God's image. On the one hand, achieving success and subduing the earth but deeply wicked and corrupt at the same time. It sounds a lot like Western culture, doesn't it? So clever when it comes to technology. Every day we invent new ways to harm each other and we fill our minds with rubbish and wickedness in increasingly creative ways. We invent clever new weapons, clever new morning after abortion pills, clever new ways to steal information and money. We use our God-given mandate to create and subdue the earth to find new ways to do evil. 
Cain's line has gone from worse, from bad to worse to worse. How much longer will God put up with it? Well, we'll find out next week from chapter 6. But in the midst of all these black clouds, there's a silver lining. There's grace running like a vein through the judgement. There's the beginnings, the hints, the faint echo of a rescue plan. It begins with Adam and Eve. God pronounced a guilty verdict on them, but at the same time, chapter 3 verse 21, he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's judgement mixed with compassion and protection, like a parent who sends his child to their room for misbehaving but then brings dinner up for them. Grace together with judgement. The Lord God sacrifices an animal to provide for his people. He makes clothes for them, warm animal skins that are much better than leaves. Why? Because he's merciful. That's chapter 3, again in chapter 4. God pronounces judgement on Cain. Cain complains and God responds with grace and protection. The Lord said to him, it won't be like that. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. It's a bit mysterious. We, We don't know what the mark was but it was there to protect Cain. Yes, he was living under God's curse, but God was showing his compassion in caring for him. But we see grace of a different sort there towards the end of chapter 4. Eve gives birth to Cain and Abel. One brings an acceptable offering, one an unacceptable one. Abel's gone And so in verse 25, God provides Eve with a replacement. Not, of course, that another son can ever replace one that's gone. Uh, But verse 25, Seth is born. His very name means gift or granted. And it seems like he too will be acceptable to God. Chapter 4 concludes, At that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. One genealogy of Cain showing the curse line and then as we move into chapter 5 we learn about another line, a blessed line, the line of Seth, Abel's replacement. And as we follow along Seth's line we read about long life as you skim through chapter 5. In other words, God's blessing. We read of fruitfulness of many sons and daughters We even, verse 24, read of Enoch who walked with God the way mankind was designed. And so because of that he didn't die, God just took him away. Yet another mysterious little reference here in these chapters that we think, what's going on there? And as we keep scanning through chapter 5, we finally come to a familiar name, verse 29, Noah, which means something like, Comfort, because his father said he will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so chapter 5 finishes and we think perhaps Noah 
Maybe he will be Eve's offspring to crush the serpent's head. Are things finally looking up? Having a little snoopy moment. Two family lines, sinfulness and grace, judgment and mercy, Cain's line that, uh, line that ends in Lamech, while Seth's line ends in Noah. Maybe the one to bring comfort, but more on that next week. So where does that leave us? Well, the pattern seems clear in this chapter. The effects of sin are increasing as we go down the family tree from father to son, like a pebble thrown into a pond. The ripples of sin spread wider and wider. One generation outdoing the next in terms of brazenness and pride, deceitfulness and trickery. And so let me ask you, how is it working in your family? How is it working in your family? What sort of messages are you sending your kids in the way you live? What are your children inheriting from you? What do they pick up in the things that you say and the attitudes you hold? What do they learn from your priorities and the things that you don't do? Your children are watching you. Your children are learning and soaking up all that you say and do like sponges. What would they think about sin as they watch you? What would they learn to value by looking at the things you value? At how you spend your money? What would they think about the importance of praying or reading the Bible from watching you? What would they think about what marriage looks like as they listen in on how you and your wife or husband relate? What about church? What do the kids learn from your attitude to church about the importance of meeting together? Is it important or does it get pushed out at the first opportunity? Your kids will grow up to live out those same attitudes that you hold or else they'll go worse. Will they live up to the pattern and go from bad to worse or will they learn and heed and grow more godly? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, says God, but you you must master it. Your family depends on you. Your kids depend on you. one of the reasons that uh, we got our kids baptised. Following Jesus is the most important thing we can pass on to our kids. We wanted our kids to know that. Uh, We want that for them more than anything else. In comparison, I've heard other Christian parents say that they're going to leave baptism until the kids are older so they can decide for themselves. But I wonder what sort of message that sends. Do mum and dad think this Christianity stuff is important or not? They let me choose ballet or football. They let me choose what clothes I'm going to wear. Is following Jesus as important as that or more important? One of our friends, Dean, grew up in a Christian family. They had regular 
family devotions that he hated as he was a teenager. Uh, He'd muck up, but his parents would keep persevering day after day, week after week, month after month, because the kids' relationship with God was the most important thing in their life. Uh, And by God's grace, they did pass that on to Dean and his brother and sister. And Dean said he doesn't remember any of the devotions that happened, but he does remember the strong message of how important following Jesus was from his parents and their sticking at giving devotions. When I was a teenager, I used to love going on Christian holiday camps, bushwalking, surfing, it didn't matter much, but every holiday I'd head off somewhere and Dad would never say no. I'd present the camp form to him and say I'd love to go to this and he'd say sure. I only recently realised that he must have stretched the budget fairly severely to be able to pay for it. But his priority was for me to know Jesus and he would do whatever it could to pass that along the family line. So which family line are you following? Are you following Cain or Seth? Are you following the line of blessing and obedience or the line of curse and disobedience? The decisions you make today are influence or, or influence the legacy that you pass along, your family line. There's one other thing I think we can learn from this passage. Maybe as you hear the story of Cain, you, you feel like you're looking in the mirror a little. Maybe your attitude and response to temptation has been to ignore God. Could be jealousy or anger, could be boasting. Maybe it seems like you're living with the consequences of your choices more than you can bear. Or maybe your family is showing the stains of your sin or those who came before you. Or maybe you're at the end of that, the receiving end of a family line living out the curses of disobedience. Well, if that's you, let me encourage you that no picture is too black, no sin is too big, no sinner has travelled too far for God to show grace to. You may think you are the expert at sinning, that Cain and Lamech will there have nothing on you. But let me tell you that God is the expert on showing mercy. No matter how big the sin, no matter how rotten the life, no matter how deep the hole, God can bring forgiveness and healing and restoration. An animal sacrificed to warm and comfort Adam and Eve, a mark of protection on the wanderer Cain. And for you, he provides another sacrifice. To protect you from his wrath. Jesus, the perfect lamb, offered in our place, who satisfies God's justice so he can offer us mercy instead. We looked at the start of Romans 5 last week, but the end of Romans 5 speaks of sin increasing. I think we've seen that today. The more law was added, the bigger the law breaking became. 
But in verse 20 it says this, and it's a principle for life, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your sin may be huge, but Jesus' righteousness is even greater. Your sin might be up to the ceiling, but God's grace is always big enough to cover it. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Through Jesus, God offers us righteousness and eternal life, grace that reigns in life. Grace that turns bad into good, not bad into worse. No matter how big your sin or how deep your hole, praise God for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a a black picture and yet we thank you for the little pearls, the little diamonds that shine through here about your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the rest of scripture. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, that in him where sin abounds, your grace superabounds. What a privilege. What confidence we can come before you with because of his work and his righteousness. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.